0: So, Jessica, do you want to kick it off yeah, or? Sure. Okay, go for it? Yeah.
1: So I actually had the pleasure of meeting Mimi. I don't know if you remember last year she came out to State College and was a keynote at one of our local conferences. So it's great to see you again.
2: Yeah, good to see you again.
1: Um, so I'm just going to give you a little background on Mimi. Uh, so Mimi Ito is a cultural anthropologist of technology use, examining children and youths' changing relationships to media and communications. She's also a professor in residence at John D. Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation and the chair in the Digital Media and Learning at the University of California, Irvine. With appointments in the University of California Humanity Research Institute, the development of anthropology and the development of informatics. Informatics. I hope I said that correctly. Um, in Japan, her research has focused on mobile and portable technologies, and she co-edited a book on the topic of personal portable uh, pedestrian mobile phones in Japanese life. She's had three collaborative ethnographic studies, uh, founded by the MacArthur Foundation, examining youth new media practices in the U.S. and focusing on gaming, digital media production, and internet use. Continuing work on informal learning with new media with the research of the MacArthur Foundation, she is research director of the Digital Media and Learning Hub at UC Irvine and chair of the MacArthur Research Network of Connected Learning. So thank you for being here, Mimi. So can you give us a brief uh, background on how you got into education and kind of into this space of digital media?
2: Sure. So I am an anthropologist and an educational researcher by training. And uh, most of my research has uh, focused on just understanding how young people, mostly teenagers, uh, use new media technology like games and mobile phones and uh, internet and remix culture and things like that. And... Uh, You know, I think I'm both a bit unconventional for internet research, but also for educational research because I look at these sort of social and Mm -hmm. recreational practices as sites of learning and more and more I've been trying to understand how we can connect with those uh, sort of social interest-driven kinds of activities that young people are doing as educators and make them more relevant for Uh, accessing educational, civic, and career opportunity for kids. So it's kind of been a journey where, you know, a lot of my early work was really just hanging out with kids on the internet and looking at the uh, digital world from their point of view. And more and more, it's been about building partnerships and collaborations with educators and technology makers to understand how we can make, you know, what kids are doing and learning with new technology relevant for our practice.
1: So um, you've talked about a lot of the projects that you've done. So what of those projects or initiatives uh, make you most proud?
2: Oh, yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's like for all the different hats I wear, you know, there's probably a different project I could um, cite. So I'll, I'll name a couple. I mean, I think our digital youth project that resulted in the Hanging Out, Messing Around, Geeking Out book, you know, was really important for us because it was the first time that uh, I think there's been a large-scale ethnographic study that really involved a ton of different case studies of different youth media practices where we came together and synthesized it across different kinds of youth cultures so we were able to tell a story not just about a single case study which is what anthropologists actually do most of the time but also how different kinds of youth cultures and practices related to one another so you know the really geeky kids versus the kids who are using mobile or social media they're all part of the same cultural universe but They have very different behaviors. So that was a project I was really proud of. Uh, And then, you know, I think the other piece that I'm really immersed in right now is this project or this effort to build a coalition around connected learning, which is really about, you know, connecting research, practice, design, you know, the opportunity to work with uh, folks from different uh, fields, backgrounds, and different expertise to really build things that... Uh, make a difference in the world, and you know it's not work that I've necessarily been leading, except on the research side. But um, you know, efforts like the U Media Learning Labs, with our which are youth maker spaces and libraries and museums, uh, the Quest to Learn schools that Katie Salen and her team at Institute of Play have been uh, really instrumental in, and you know, most recently, uh, Katie and I um, together with Tara Brown, uh, who's a leader in the maker movement have started our own uh, startup. It's a benefit corporation called Connected Camps, which is delivering online learning experiences in the game of Minecraft. And I'm really proud of that right effort right now because it's sort of a passion project where we're trying to take a lot of what we've learned about how kids engage with commercial entertainment, but uh, you know, make it kind of an intergenerational and educational sort of environment.
1: Can you elaborate a little bit more on your work with the connected learning Um,
2: a little bit more about
1: uh, such how it's a dynamic re um, reimagining of education, and how it can provide its uh, learners in society. So what is it. Can you describe a little bit more about it and what it's doing.
2: Yeah, so connected learning was sort of a model for both describing a certain kind of learning, but also for uh, an agenda for research and design that really took a learner focused perspective and was really synthesizing a lot of the state of the art of the learning sciences, but also what practitioners and designers were understanding and uh, developing in practice. And it emerged from a lot of the MacArthur Foundation funded projects. So it really is a much broader network that is um, as much about, you know, saying, oh, we learned a lot of these, a lot of things from these projects, but looking out there at what a lot of you know, progressive educators are already doing with new technology and saying, look, what does it take to accomplish a lot of the longstanding goals of pro- pro- progressive education with new technology? So that's sort of the motivating uh, thesis of connected learning. And how we think about it from a learning sciences perspective is that, you know, we're in an environment where young people are growing up in a context of abundance of information and social connection which differs really from you know when a lot of our educational institutions were founded where you know young people needed access to particular kinds of learning institutions in order to access relationships and information that uh, had to do with specialized knowledge and of course today the environment is very different and it really uh, sort of pushes us to consider how we can think of learning less as something that's transmission of knowledge, but something that's more about connecting and introducing and brokering young people to opportunities as much as it is about, you know, sharing, instructing, transmitting knowledge, and then um, expecting it to transfer across context. So it really is sort of a model of learning that's been there in the progressive approaches, whether it's Dewey or you know, contemporary learning sciences that come from the sociocultural tradition. But we're really saying, look, what if we reframe the fundamental purpose of our educational institutions as not a pipeline in the sense that we're handing kids off from one institution to another in a progression, but a process of network and connection building that's really... Um, learner-centered rather than institution-centered and so we talk about connected learning as that moment when young people are able to have an experience that is connected to their own interests and identities something that's personally meaningful to them so it's an interest-driven model uh, but they're able to uh, pursue that interest with a supportive uh, network a set of relationships with peers Uh, caring adults, and they're able to connect that to opportunity. So I'll give you an example from some of our research where, you know, we met so many young people who are going online uh, to go deep into an area of interest, whether it's fandom or gaming or a creative interest. And they really describe the sense that, oh, I finally found my people, they're really into the things that I'm into, you know, super excited. And that Um, supportive context really pushed them to get better at something, to share things with another community of expertise who also appreciated and rewarded them and made their work relevant. Uh, But a lot of those kids were not able to connect those interests to educational opportunity or civic opportunity or career opportunity. So they might get really good at something like video remixing or writing or coding. But, you know, most of the educational institutions, the civic institutions, the workplaces didn't really have a way of seeing or recognizing it. So we see a real opportunity to kind of close that loop and bring that third sphere into play, because young people have this opportunity to, you know, access these online communities of interest, these free and open online resources in ways that really weren't available until fairly recently. But I think as educators, we haven't quite figured out the kinds of practices, processes, uh, you know, institutional uh, policies that enable us to say, look, you know, go online, do interesting things, and we'll support you and recognize you and uh, fill in the pieces of your network and ecosystem that uh, you need filled in.
1: So how do you personally uh, encourage your students that you mentor to make this impact that you've just kind of talked about?
2: Yeah. So again, I'll give a concrete example. Um, You know, one of the things that we've been looking at really closely is this idea of affinity based mentorship, which is, you know, this uh, that comes from our research that's really found that you know, when young people are able to be mentored by somebody who not only has the knowledge Mm -hmm. and expertise, but who shares an interest in who they feel deeply connected to, we know that's very transformative. And that relationship is often one where, you know, there is knowledge sharing, there is expertise, like whether that's a, you know, tennis coach, or whether it's, you know, uh, a Mm -hmm. teacher, Uh, but there's also the ability to really know that student and direct them to opportunities, suggest things, connect with their interests. So that seems like a really important relationship in kids' lives. And there's quite a lot of research that shows that, you know, independent of other factors, it's one of the things that has one of the biggest effects for not just connected learning, but just life success and thriving. So, you know, um, when we were working with Nicole Pinker to develop, you know, and she was developing uh, the Umedia Learning Lab model, she brought in uh, teaching artists who were experts and really embodied the identity of the interests and the cultural identity of the young people she was trying to attract to the space. So they were spoken word artists, there were digital media artists, there were musicians uh, who came in and, you know, they, uh, the DYN team uh, trained them to be good mentors and to work with young people. And there were also youth librarians in this space who were obviously uh, really well, um, you know, they were experts at connecting with young people. Uh, And what was really magical about those relationships is that, you know, those bonds that the young people um, made with mentors who sort of, they, they felt they could really connect with um, as full people, but also because they were um, artists who were already, are, were active artists, mm-hmm. so they had social capital and connections in the city and the wider community. So when they found a young person who was interested in say spoken word, they would also uh, support them competing in a citywide or even a national competition. So. They were able to broker and broaden those networks that young people have, Uh, you know, we have a similar model with, you know, our Connected Camps, our Minecraft program, because Mm -hmm. we, um, you know, we bring in sort of world class game designers and uh, curriculum designers to design the programs, but we actually train high school and college students to work with the younger kids because they're the ones who are genuine Minecraft nerds and totally into it and follow everything about Minecraft. There's no way we as grown-ups, could be like authentic experts in the Minecraft universe to the extent that, you know, a college student or a high school student who's really into it uh, themselves could. So, you know, we do a lot of training and, you know, teach them how to moderate conflict and work with young people. Uh, and, you know, there's really nothing more exciting for, You know, a 10 or 11 year old to be working with a big brother or big sister who's just a few years older than them, who, uh, you know, embody that identity, who have tons of knowledge, but they're also there to help them, which is something that they Mm -hmm. don't usually have when they just go online and meet strangers on the internet. So it's just filling those little gaps in the ecosystem and trying to understand how, you know, There's like a ton of opportunity with something like Minecraft, but there's this missing piece, which is that, uh, you know, young people aren't incentivized or trained necessarily to be helpful teachers Mm -hmm. to littler kids. And so trying to leverage what's already in the ecosystem, but connect the dots where there's disconnections.
1: Um, There's a a question in the chat box I kind of want to bring up that goes along this line. So how can young people make their learning transparent to prospective employees? So as they grow older and Mm -hmm. are employers responding?
2: Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question. I think what we're seeing is that in fields that are characterized by really fast paced change, where traditional kinds of credentialing and coursework, aren't really keeping up. So you see this first in something like coding or creative arts that uh, employers are already using different kinds of metrics to understand, you know, how young people are successful. So, you know, for example, DeviantArt, which is, you know, the biggest online platform for visual art sharing and publication, a lot of art schools and employers already look at uh, kids' DeviantArt portfolios for work and for art school admissions so that's an example where it's kind of happened organically where you know the if you have um, somebody who's been publishing their work on the internet who has tons of followers and likes that itself is already validating for certain kind of professions I think a similar thing happens with YouTube like you know we're seeing that when um, kids or or, or sites like um, there's a coding site, I'm blanking on the name, but, you know, where, uh, you know, coders can do co- code, open coding competitions. And, you know, if you have millions of followers on your YouTube already, or if you've won these coding competitions, or if you have really beautiful artwork on DeviantArt, you know, these are all things that matter already. Uh, with coding in particular, there's a lot of alternative credentialing and kind of educational institutions that Um, a lot of employers see as more valid than a traditional sort of computer science degree. So, you know, you see a school like uh, Epitech in France and, you know, they started 42 just recently here uh, in the U.S. But, you know, these are coding academies with a radically different pedagogy. They don't have teachers. It's all pure learning. And they have a reputation now of graduating students who are just incredible coders and have been really, really successful. So... Uh, you know, it's kind of the proof is in the pudding for some of these alternative models. And as, uh, you know, these different, more peer-to-peer kind of open type systems are successful in producing really great results and talent, and, you know, they're lower risk because you're employing people who have already been proven to be successful. Uh, I think these alternatives are going to start getting more and more attractive for, for certain fields, not every field.
1: Yeah. What was the name of that alternative coding school in the U.S.?
2: 42. 42. Okay. It was that just the from the um, For You Hitchhiker Guide. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a nerd reference. Yeah.
1: Um, so one of the areas it seems like people um, want you to drill a little bit more into is the Phineas-based mentorship. Um, so how is it set up uh, finding mentors, training the mentors, etc.?
2: Yeah. So I think we're still really early in our learning curve. And, you know, I think it's something that, you know, good programs have been doing already for a long Mm -hmm. time, especially sort of youth development type programs, informal programs that when you talk to a lot of informal educators, they'll say that you know, their secret sauce is really their ability to connect with youth around their interests. So it's not like it's something radically new. And, you know, this is what good teachers have always done is, you know, connect with their young people and really understand what their interests are. And, you know, be able to connect young people who they know deeply to opportunities. And, you know, we saw this in our case studies as well, that You know, especially unless they happen to be kids who are growing up in creative class families that were really connected with digital interests. It was usually the teachers who were the ones that were able to close that circle when it happened because a young person would confide in a teacher. Oh, actually, I do write fan fiction, even though they're usually really embarrassed to say things like that. But if they're a teacher that they feel really connected to, they'll share those things. And that English teacher might tell them to write for the school newspaper or might suggest that they take a different class in school. And those moments when a young person finds, has a mentor who they trust and care enough to confide, you know, their interests, their aspirations, uh, you know, that's really, really transformative. So it's not like, you know that person has to be in a bucket, right? That Mm -hmm. is like a teaching artist or some particular category, but it's really about the quality of the relationship. And, you know, we saw that in, you know, there was a massive uh, study done by um, Gallup and Purdue of 30,000 college graduates. And it's the students who said that they uh, connected deeply with a faculty member during their time in college that really showed the most positive outcomes like many years later. So again, this is something that is part of our educational practice that we're just trying to sort of highlight and elevate as a really important factor. Now, you can more intentionally design for it and that, you know, the example of connected camps or uh, the digital youth network mentoring model is a really good example. Uh, I'll give one more example that comes from, you know, the researcher the research team on our network, who is really most focused on uh, mentoring, which is uh, Jean Rhodes uh, group. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she has a center for evidence-based mentorship that has been running for many, many years. And she's been since she's been part of our Connected Learning Research Network, she's really been, you know, thinking about models of mentorship that are more youth-initiated and youth-centered rather than the traditional kind of big brothers, big sister model, which you know, has a particular theory that if you match a privileged kid with a less privileged kid, good things are going to happen, but it's not necessarily an affinity-based model, and it's actually one that ends up being pretty complicated, and she did this meta-analysis of, um, you know, a lot of the more traditional youth mentoring programs and found, you know, not surprisingly when young people are connected to mentors based on interest, the effects are better, Mm -hmm. right? But a lot of programs don't actually look at shared interest or cultural identity as a way of matching. Uh, But she's developed a really interesting program that she's running now at UMass where she's actually uh, has a training or a course that um, helps young people develop skills to recruit their own mentors. So another really important finding from her work is that when young people select their mentors and actually recruit their own mentors, the effects are much better. So it's not necessarily that we have to provide mentors. And in fact, when you know some of our digital programs we did explicit mentor matching. That is incredibly difficult to get right. Uh, actually, you know, in our model, it's about creating context where it's like, oh, we're going to do this thing together that's interesting. And then mentorship, uh, you know, happens naturally as a side product of doing shared interest-based activities. That's one model. You know, the model that Jean's trying at UMass is really to say, look, folks, it's really important that you find mentors in your lives. And here are the skills and the ways that you can do that, which I also think is a really interesting approach.
1: So do you think that these mentorships are better face-to-face or online or is there really no difference?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think they're different, right? Mm -hmm. Because obviously if you have an in-person relationship, you know, there's sort of a, you know, authenticity and a deepness to it that is really, really important. And some kids do much better with that kind of relationship. I think the advantage of online is that it enables specialization and a different kind of safety Mm -hmm. so that, you know, a lot of times like kids, especially if, you know, they're not in really dense urban regions and they may have a fairly specialized interest. I mean, one of the things that we know is that kids have really diverse interests and, You know, if you happen to, you know, like uh, basketball or football or, you know, something that's, you know, or math, science or English, something that's school sponsored, then you're in luck. But what if you're like the badminton player or the kid who's into anime or, you know, some other niche identity? And then, you know, the online world suddenly gives you access to this, you know, community of incredibly specialized and, you know, nerdy you know, deep, immersive, interest-based experiences that really weren't available before. And there's something about, you know, the safety of being able to pursue those interests without fear of stigmatization and judgment, which is also what a lot of kids get in school and are afraid of. So, you know, we did one study of fans of professional wrestling who, you know, they wouldn't reveal their interest in their local peer group because the stakes are so high, for being cool and fitting in, but they could connect with those interests in a safe online space that was really, really empowering. Um, You know, even when you had like uh, tweens who were into One Direction, which, you know, they're an incredibly popular boy band and, you know, during the heyday, like, you know, a really big proportion of any, you know, middle school girl population probably would have been into them, but they still didn't feel like they could share their interest in their classroom, uh, you know, among their peer group. But, you know, online, they could just go all out, you know, and be, you know, screaming fangirls and not be judged. And, you know, there was the freedom to be who you are uh, for some interests that, you know, are not high status within a local peer group.
1: That kind of reminds me of uh, one of my first mentors. Uh, it started out face to face, but then we both moved to different areas. So it naturally kind of turned into an online um, mentorship. Do you see that with a lot of children where it's something that maybe they start to create these relationships that are beyond, say, the project that they're working on, that it becomes more of like a lifelong mentorship? Or do you think it's very um, situational?
2: yeah I think this is the other effect of online networks that is really, really important and is supportive and uh, protective of connected learning and social capital and relationships is because you know you're able to sustain and continue relationships and keep connections warm even yeah. when you've moved institutions you've moved locations so we found that really early on when we were doing research with the first big wave of mobile phone adoption in Japan where you know, high school kids developed a new category called chūtomo, but it meant middle school friend. And Mm -hmm. they were able to keep in touch with their friends from middle school after they moved to high school, Mm -hmm. which was like, if you think about it, it was kind of impossible for them to do that before they had mobile phones. So this category of middle school friend did not pre-exist the mobile phone. So it's like suddenly you have the ability to maintain relationships. And I think for connected learning and our model of learning, it's really, really important because, you know, I don't think it's like those relationships suddenly evaporated even before we had online communications. But, you know, this idea that they're actually young people need to be supported in developing a supportive network of relationships and that. You know, you think of learning not as pouring things into a kid's head, but actually a process of building a wider and more diverse set of networks. If the ability to sustain those networks is more resilient because of online communication, that means the model of, you know, learning as connection building relationship building is that much more robust.
1: Um, So to transition kind of the conversation a little bit. a lot of your work, um, you know, is really impacting. I think a lot of people. And at the DML conference this year, you conducted a sold-out workshop called "The Power Brokers: Building Youth Social Capital Through Connected Learning." Can you tell us a little bit about this event and the impact that it's had on the field?
2: Yeah. So this was actually, you know, led by Dixie Ching, who has been a lot doing a lot of work with the Hive Network in New York, which is a network of youth-serving organizations that are collaborating to provide. You know, new digital type learning opportunities to young people. And one of the outcomes of working in this sort of collaborative, networked way across organizations is that. Uh, folks realized that a big part of what they need to do and what wasn't within their traditional organizational charter was thinking about the ways that we could connect opportunities across different organizations. So, you know, often as educators and as educational reformers, we take a very organization-centered point point of view, like how can we get kids into our programs? How can we optimize the learning that's happening when the kids are in our walls? rather than really thinking about what's the next step and how are we bringing kids in and how does what we do as educators fit within a broader network of opportunities for a particular young person for a particular range of interests. And I think what's really exciting about the conversations coming out of the Hive and what we were doing in the workshop is that, you know, there's this groundswell coming from youth serving organizations to look at things like mentorship and brokering as a fundamental aspect of what educators do if we're really wanting to support youth interests and development rather than really just about maximizing the numbers and the efficacy Mm -hmm. of our own programs. So something like brokering is like have you effectively um, moved kids out of your program becomes a really, really important metric and a set of design principles that, again, it's not that programs hadn't been considering at all, but we're just trying to elevate that this connection building is just as important for young people in expanding their opportunities as the fact that they've acquired specific skills and competencies within your specific program. And, you know, I think it's very relevant to, you know, what's happened, you know, this week in this country and, you know, trying to understand how to, you know, Build coalitions across organizations and you know to really think honestly and transparently about you know what are the interests of uh, you know us as teachers, researchers, what are the interests of our students, and what are the interests of the organizations and they 're not always the same and I think we have to be super honest about that and also understand that you know the process of understanding connecting with you know, organizations that are, you know, not, you know, totally about our benefit and our organization, our self-interest, you know, we learn so much from that. So I think educators, formal educators, understanding how their work connects with informal educators, you know, people like me who are in kids' pure internet-y culture, like, We all have like a different perspective to bear on this systemic problem of how to support young people, how to support their learning, their interests and helping them thrive. And I think these conversations that are happening uh, at the intersections that are sort of interdisciplinary and across different learning institutions are really, really exciting because it's saying, you know, how can we find those points where, you know, we are aligning because we are supporting young people. You know, that is our shared purpose. And that feels really exciting to me and qualitatively different than, you know, like the debates we're having, like as somebody in higher education, you know, the conversations we have about how do we really support our young people are different from like, how do we maintain the status of our institutions? You know, what are our rankings? What are our, you know, efficacy for our outcomes? They're just qualitatively different conversations that are really, really exciting.
1: So I'm gonna, it's a, about that time I want to open up the questions to the audience, um, but while they're starting to type in their questions, we've asked most of the, the, the panelists today uh, one question of, you know, who inspires you and what has shaped you as an educator?
2: Oh, my God, there's so many people who have inspired me. But I have to say, like, for me, my inspiration is always teenagers, like I love them. And I learn so much. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the young, like, I don't have, a, I've never had an original idea. It's always come from the, you know, younger folks. And, you know, again, to this week's events, like, I just am so blown away by, you know, the energy that kids brought to this mm-hmm. um, this whole political mess, and you know how they're continuing to just surprise us, and you know keep us honest. So I think they're my inspiration, really.
0: We've had, I think, pretty much across the board, every person answered it has somehow looped in their students. And yeah, they yeah, they work yeah. In, part
2: of their passion, yeah. which is
0: great. <laughs> and then you're in the right job because yeah, of- I know
2: <laughs> there's <laughs> yeah, a well, reason why we do the work we <laughs> do. Yeah, yeah.
0: Exactly. I just wanted to, uh, and certainly please everybody in the text chat, please take this opportunity to to post some questions. Um, our earlier speakers today, and we've got Heidi with us, um, who we actually kicked us off from the Department of Ed in Octay, which is uh, working with adults in career and technical education. And a lot of the projects we're working on at Designers for Learning are targeting the um, adult basic education. And so I'm trying to, you know, pull and grab a lot of the concepts you're talking about. And we talk a lot about contextualized learning, which I think shares a lot with your connected learning, which I know does have kind of the, with the, um, the, the technology, you know, connecting, like literally connecting, <laughs> and then connecting yeah. it to um, the academic, to then to the then real life. So, how do you think some of the concepts you work on with the youth um, would transfer to? And now we're talking about a very specific population of adults who aren't uh, technology literate, as Heidi mm-hmm. ran through a lot of um, unfortunate statistics mm-hmm. regarding skill gaps with technology, um, and then just having failed at one point or another in formal education. And so we're trying to reach them in creative ways. So any thoughts on that? Is this any area you've ever worked in? Or if you could help us out, give us some
2: pointers. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, it's not an area that I have a lot of expertise, but, you know, what you're describing, I think, really resonates with, you know, a lot of our approach and our philosophy in that, you know, the point is that, I think you know it is about lifelong learning and not not about saying that you know learning needs to be in a particular kind of box or a particular kind of setting but that you know it's really about what are the you know needs concerns interests what's relevant to the learner and you know it's in in the context right like that this idea that we have to create these sequestered environments that are and sequestered life stages for learning is, I think, increasingly being disrupted. So what you're describing seems to be totally in line with what we're seeing. So, you know, even when we're looking at young people, we we've, um, find that a lot of young adults who may be college graduates, but they didn't really have any vocational focus to what they were doing in um, higher education. You know, after they graduate, they're like, oh, I guess I need some skills for the workplace. And then they're going to, you know, Udacity or these online learning platforms or a coding boot camp or whatever it might be to learn data science or to learn something that is actually vocationally relevant, which isn't necessarily what they might have been focused in the traditional educational system. So... You know, I think the question of, like, learners who don't necessarily have the fluency or the comfort with the technology is, you know, a unique gap that um, I'm hoping some of these new uh, models and platforms might help address. But I do think that the overall need, the fact that, you know, we're in a context where, you know, the workplace and the technology and the job situation is changing so rapidly means that, you know, we can't really expect... um, people to learn everything in their first 16 or 18 years of life that's going to sustain their careers for the rest of their lives. So it's a problem that, you know, is totally agnostic as to life stage at this point, I think.
0: And then um, tying into your comments, um, I, I, I was one of the ones in the text chat asking you about the um, the mentorship and the peer-to-peer. It's really something at least no, none of our subject matter experts have raised, this idea mm-hmm. of uh, um, the learners kind of drive. We, we talked a little bit about and we talked about it today, family literacy, um, where I guess that would be a very specific affinity group, right? <laughs> you're you're you know, working on something within your family unit. But um, you know that's that was really um, sent some light bulbs off, trying to think of ways that that could, apply because this whole yeah. idea of relevancy and you know, why am I doing this even you know I've already failed once in formal education yeah, yeah yeah I need to get a job but it's it seems so far out of reach you know these jobs you're talking about and the skills that are required um, it, it's just kind of bridging that you know how do you make that happen and that was just mm-hmm. kind of the um, you know, the concept of bringing in the peers to
2: try to make yeah and I think you know as academics this is how we got our professional training, right? So if we reflect on our, you know, how um, graduate students and, you know, postdocs and academics uh, both got trained within that, you know, more period, but also as we continue to learn, it's a totally peer-based model. I mean, we call it peer review. We use all of the language of peer-to-peer learning and mentorship in how, you know, academics because, you know, again, it's a field that you have to stay constantly on top of things. It's not like you can just stop learning as an academic and an expert in your field. So I think in whether it's like, um, you know, uh, vocational, any kind of vocational field, I think has a dimension of peer-to-peer learning already. Um, And for some reason, like in K-12 and higher ed, we sort of sequestered it. But the more prevalent mode of learning is actually more based on this peer to peer model. It just feels different when we're talking about, you know, younger folks and applying this model, I think.
0: And uh, we'll, we'll let you go to, But I think we did have one yeah. more question in the uh, john had a question. Uh, I don't know if you can see it in the text chat. Is there a distinction between teenagers, youth who build social capital online only without face to face interaction versus youth who build social capital primary, primarily face to face?
2: Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question, and I don't think we've, like, really have ways of, you know, necessarily, it's one of those things that's very hard to investigate systematically, right? Um, But I do think that there's, you know, just from our qualitative case studies, yeah, obviously there are important differences, and, you know, there are good and bad on both sides. Like, if I was to characterize it really broadly, you know, I think the online networks Um, have the benefit of specialization right and accessibility and so young people are able to more easily move in and out and access access more specialized communities of interest online usually Um, but then you know the face-to-face contexts have the strength of you know the supportive relationships that are able to scaffold connections to those local institutions that have a lot of power over kids' lives. So, you know, if you're really looking to change opportunity, those face-to-face connections are going to generally have a lot more power. And we definitely have seen cases where online relationships translate into something like a a real workplace opportunity or, you know, an educational opportunity. But, you know, by far the weight of that kind of Transformative difference happens in local relationships and institutions, and I don't think it's because somehow those relationships are more real or meaningful. It's just that those relationships are tied to institutions of power in young people's lives in ways that online relationships tend not to be. Yeah,
0: great points. Well, thank you so much, and I hope you don't mind if I drop you an email maybe when I <laughs> when I have a chance to get these.
2: Things yeah, I'd love to learn more about your work too. So. Yeah, well, we're tra-
0: we we mentioned it a couple times today that we're trying to get away from this idea of dump content quiz dump. Content. <laughs> right,
2: right, yeah.
0: Uh, and, and you know, those that are joining us, helping us to design instruction, many have not. You know, this is kind of new to them. They're just first design, first projects that they're designing, and then they fall back to that trap of. Um, so that's what's been most exciting about today is everyone bringing together all these creative ideas and as you're saying looking outside of what we've tr- traditionally done within the walls of an institution it's yeah. Inspiring to hear. So thank you so much for taking time out of your Saturday.
2: Appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, no, thank you. And good luck with the marathon. You guys <laughs> seem to have a lot of energy and motoring on. So I'm super yeah. impressed.
0: We're taking <laughs> breaks. Jason's taking his break right now. <laughs> 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 we're, and we're not doing a full twenty-four, we're just doing the twelve. Well, year. Okay. So okay. That's
2: still pretty pretty impressive. So <laughs>
0: maybe next year we'll try the twenty-four. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, thank you again. Okay. Guys, Thanks see a see lot. You. This was
2: a lot of fun.
0: Bye-bye.